0: principles of environmental toxicology. Those students have been with us all semester recall one of the earlier definitions I gave you of toxicology, that it is in fact chemistry at the interface of biology. This part of the course, we're starting to, at least for a few lectures here, transition a little bit more robustly into the world of chemistry. Today's lecture, Abiotic Transformations in the Environment, is actually an environmental chemistry uh, lecture. Uh, This and the next lecture, where we talk about environmental chemodynamics, uh, perhaps are a coupled uh, set of presentations that allow you to have a little bit background of environmental chemistry as it relates to chemicals that actually are transported and arrive in the environment and have the potential for exposure within the domain of environmental toxicology. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about these transformations in these chemicals, the reactions, uh, the what's, if you will, of environmental chemistry. Whereas in our chemodynamics lecture, what we're going to talk about is the why of environmental chemistry, why things happened. You know, if uh, you think about it, uh, we were uh, witnessing an orchestration of the events what is the energy bookkeeping that allows for those events to be somewhat spontaneous or not uh, in terms of environmental chemistry. Today's uh, discussion, what we're gonna do in terms of learning objectives, we'll try to have you understand the role of solar photons. Uh, These are an energy source, a primary energy source for the planet uh, and how it has the ability to drive chemical reactions in the environment. We're going to describe, in general, some of the dynamics of excited states. These are excited chemical states. So at least we'll take you back to freshman chemistry, and perhaps for several of you, uh, we'll actually enter the domain of organic chemistry and physical chemistry in terms of your preparation for this course. But we'll try to explain some of the dynamics of excited states when a molecule absorbs a photon and becomes excited it becomes photosensitized what happens in terms of the cascade of potential chemical reactions in the environment. We'll try to have you understand the major abiotic chemical reaction pathways in the environment so if we're looking at this uh, in a certain sense a participant in this chemical soup uh, we, we call the planet uh, Earth uh, what are some of the major abiotic chemical reactions in the environment These chemical reactions will actually, on an abiotic basis, not using uh, a living intermediate, allow for either the activation or deactivation of some potential chemical constituents, chemical toxicants in the environment. We'll try to get a little bit into environmental organic chemistry, and this is a briefing. Uh, I'm not going to be asking you within the context of this course to be pushing bonds and electrons around in terms of looking at reactive pathways we will expect you to understand some of the major pathways to be able to look at a molecule and determine uh, perhaps the most likely sorts of pathways or if a change is presented to you, for example, on an exam or a quiz, to be able to say, yes, this is a hydrolysis or an oxidation reaction from very basic uh, principles, typically at the freshman chemistry basis or within regards to some of the content that we're gonna talk about in the lecture. We're going to uh, describe the uh, branches or the types of environmental chemical reactions, electrophilic, nucleophilic, hydrolysis, and redox oxidation and reduction reactions that occur in environmental chemistry. We'd like to have you summarize the basic reactions associated as well with uh, the formation of the hole in the ozone layer. This will be kind of a focus area. It's just going to be an application of some of the things that we're talking about in terms of Uh, chemical oxidation, uh, photolysis, and reactivity in terms of something you should know a little bit about in terms of the fundamental chemistry. We're not going to talk about it as much. Uh, There are some uh, resources on the course website to update you in terms of the current findings. Uh, Obviously, there's a great deal of concern about the ozone hole and its dynamics and its impact. I think for the first time, uh, definitely the first time in my lifetime, and and, uh, perhaps for most students here, uh, the world came together and said, uh, we have done a bad thing. Uh, This was an unpredicted consequence of human activity. We did an ex post facto life cycle assessment. A Nobel Prize uh, was uh, awarded uh, to a professor and a postdoc at University of California, Santa Barbara for determining the fundamental chemical mechanisms in this particular process. And the world came together once we understood that and actually banned uh, several classes of chemical compounds that are known to react with ozone. And so we haven't necessarily gotten to the point of reversing this, but at least we have stabilized uh, to a large degree the development of the hole in the ozone layer. Finally, we'll try to have you uh, be able to summarize the reactions associated with the formation of acid rock drainage. And this, again, is going to be a little focus area for you uh, in terms of abiotic uh, chemical reactions. We'll see that there is, in fact, an interface uh, with the microbiology world. So it is more of an abiotic-biotic interaction. But talk about this in terms of its natural environmental chemistry. Well, let's get started with photochemical reactions. As I indicated, uh, all life uh, uh, on our planet Uh, comes from the Sun and the Sun's energy and the Sun has tremendous capacity to change our environmental chemistry on the planet. Uh, Endothermic chemical reactions can get their required energy of reaction from solar photons. So the solar photons are in fact for these endothermic or energy requiring chemical reactions Uh, they uh, can get their charge so to speak their battery from the Sun. Some of the photons, especially in the UV visible range, are strong enough to actually break some chemical bonds. And some of this light is actually available in the solar spectrum. If you don't think uh, that uh, photons can uh, do uh, chemical damage and uh, physiological damage, I invite you to go out on a bright, sunny summer day uh, without sunscreen and get a good sunburn, and you'll see, in fact, that there is the potential for the ultraviolet and the high-end visible to actually burn your skin, to actually destroy via the absorption of photons some of the cells on your skin. The energy is uh, specific uh, in terms of the two um, energy uh, relationships that we have on here. It's kilojoules per Einstein in the SI units or kilocalories per mole of photons in the non-SI unit. But what you can see is that This number is actually inverse to the wavelength, and so um, there is a wavelength relationship to energy, okay? Uh, And the the, uh, shorter the wavelength, the higher the energy for a particular photon. One of the things most of us should have done at this point in time is reviewed the electromagnetic spectrum. This is uh, uh, perhaps grade school or middle school, um, but you may not know it in terms of its overall relationship to what we observe in our daily lives, which is typically the visible spectrum. And this is about uh, 0.4 nanometers to 0.7 nanometers. This is the colors of the rainbow. This is what we see in terms of visible light. Infrared light or heat light up here has a lower energy uh, uh, photon and a higher energy photon being the ultraviolet. But what we experience on the planet in terms of the visible spectrum and even the UV and IR is actually a very small part of the overall electromagnetic spectrum. And so if we take a look at all of the uh, range of potential uh, wavelengths, We, for example, use microwave ovens. Uh, These are uh, wavelengths, very long wavelengths, up at this uh, uh, wavelength range, as opposed to the higher energy ultraviolet x-rays and gamma rays, uh, the gamma rays and x-rays associated with uh, nuclear processes. These gives you an idea of some of the potential for reaction, typically because the photons are more energetic as we go down here in this direction, uh, what we find is that uh, uh, this is where chemical reactivity happens. And so in the IR, we may be able to heat up a molecule, but we're not going to break it up. We're not going to fertilize uh, this particular uh, chemical. I put a picture in here. I've got a collection of uh, various types of pictures. I like this one because uh, in the back, we have a large power line uh, and a rainbow crossing uh, this particular shot. Uh, this one is actually in South Africa. It's an interesting picture, a uh, very colorful picture, but again, the idea is to give you a relationship between light energy and uh, the potential for chemical reaction. Now many of us in our chemistry classes will have uh, identified that there is a potential for what is called photochemistry and this happens when a molecule absorbs a photon Uh, many of us have for example seen black light posters black light is uh, uh, more of a uv type source uh, even though it's a low energy uv and it allows for uh, the colors the fluorescent colors to absorb a photon in the UV but then spit it back out in the visible so that we can see a pattern in a fluorescence process that we couldn't see in normal natural uh, visible spectrum light. Photon absorption is a quantum event and so uh, essentially uh, we have learned that you need a photon of a particular energy to excite an uh, energy level within a specific molecule or atom. So these specific energies are required for excitation and reaction, and they are a characteristic of the molecule. This is a basic principle. It's a basic principle of quantum mechanics. It's almost like going to a store where the price of the items in that store is non-negotiable. And so if it says that this particular product costs a dollar, you can't say, well, all I have is 95 cents. Is it close enough? In quantum mechanics, the answer is no, you need to have your dollar. So you need to have certain amounts or quanta of energy to have the process move forward to excite the molecule into an excited state. For example, infrared absorption corresponds to vibrational excitation of chemical bonds. So when we heat up our food, whether it be by an infrared lamp, a cooking lamp, or actually heating just by infrared light, or via some other processes like cooking where we have uh, other passive uh, uh, transfer of infrared uh, energy. Uh, These will have to do with absorption of vibrational energy corresponding to those chemical bonds. Now the major classification that we're concerned with in environmental chemistry because of the reactive pathways to create or destroy chemicals of environmental concern is UV absorption. And it corresponds to electronic excitation. That means we're going to excite the electrons into excited states. Usually these are lone pair, uh, which are N electrons. And N electrons, remembering from freshman chemistry, occur on heteroatoms like oxygen and nitrogen. But we can also have uh, uh, electrons being excited from delocalized pi states, or double bonds. And so the heteroatom excitation, (coughs) excuse me, is an end pi star is what it's referred to. We won't go into the details of that. We'll just label it for now. So an oxygen or a nitrogen, for example, will be an end to pi star uh, transition. Uh, We'll also potentially have conjugations, excitations of pi uh, orbitals into pi star orbitals. And so we're going from a ground state, uh, which is a typical environmental state, to an excited state. That excited state may be uh, allowing a pathway in terms of chemical reaction of this compound. Now in photochemical reactions, um, this is a complex uh, subdiscipline of f- physical chemistry, photochemistry. We find that excited molecules can undergo either unimolecular or bimolecular reactions. What's a unimolecular? Obviously it's something where we have a single molecule that absorbs a photon and, and then can react, and typically that's a dissociation or a breaking up. And so we find a bond breaking, uh, we can find some potential for uh, inner system crossing uh, because this excited molecule might be able to meet up with another molecule and just hand off its energy. That's a, a long word, inter-system crossing, but it just means that your excitement is shared with all of those around you. Now think of that uh, uh, situation. Uh, it's, and when I used to teach freshman chemistry, I used to have the students stand up and uh, essentially rotate and run around uh, the, the room, and they are able to transfer some of their excitation to each other. Same sort of thing here on a molecular basis if you need some visualization. Uh, in terms of direct photolysis, I have an example here of methane absorbing a photon, and this is H nu, and the wavelength of this is a high energy photon, it's less than uh, 140 nanometers, so this is high energy UV visible, uh, I'm sorry, UV radiation, and it's going to go through a unimolecular dissociation down to CH2 uh, plus H2. So it's absorbed a photon, a very high energy photon. It's enough to break bonds. It's enough to dissociate the molecule of methane into two additional molecules. Another pathway in photochemistry is bimolecular. And this is a chemical reaction pathway and typically um, can involve some degree of energy transfer. And so here, Again, because of quantum mechanics, typically only one of the partners in the chemical reaction is going to be photosensitized, or exactly appear in an excited state. In this case, we have a, a mercury atom, and I've gone ahead and given uh, a singlet s zero orbital here, and that's for the, for the physical chemist among us. But it's going to absorb light at 253 uh, nanometers it is going to then go to an excited state. And I've put this little asterisk up here, and this is a triplet P state, and that's just the atomic orbital designation for that excited state. You don't need to know that, you just need to know that it's in a photochemically excited state. That photochemically excited Mercury, and by the way, in your fluorescent lamps, there is a photochemical excitation pathway, a mercury-sensitized pathway, associated with the development of the light in typical fluorescent tubes that is associated with the excited uh, state of mercury and the fluorophores that actually appear in fluorescent lamps. In this particular case, we've got this excited state mercury atom it's going to react with methane gas and actually uh, drop its energy and use that energy to dissociate the methane into CH3 plus a hydrogen atom. Okay? And so this is a bimolecular chemical reaction. The chemical excitation of mercury was sufficient upon reaction with methane to actually break the covalent bonds in methane. Okay, So this is kind of a basic introduction to photochemistry. I want to make you aware that these processes can happen. Now, if we take a look at the range of light energy available uh, on the surface of the Earth and then take a look at various bond energies associated with uh, organic chemicals, these are the bonds over here. So this is an OH, this is an HH, and this is a carbon-hydrogen bond a carbon-oxygen bond, a fundamental carbon-carbon bond, and here's a uh, halogen-carbon-chlorine bond. And you can see that there is a certain amount of bond energy, uh, and these are in kilojoules per mole associated with breaking that bond. Okay, So this is in a relaxed or ground state. Um, It's very comfortable, but you can put enough energy into the system, a quantal absorption of a photon, that will allow that bond to break typically because it goes through some sort of excited state. The light energy associated with the energy related to being able to break that bond is over here, and this is in nanometers. And so as you go from 257 uh, nanometers uh, up to uh, almost 500 nanometers. In the visible spectrum, uh, this is blue-green light here, 492, and so you can see that green light, which is relatively low energy, uh, 243 kilojoules per mole will break a carbon halogen bond. As you get down here, um, 300 and below, you get into the UV and finally into the uh, high-energy UV at 257, and you can see that these bonds, which are stronger, require a higher energy photon to break. The quantization has to do with the energy of these photons. And we can go back to that Einstein uh, wavelength relationship in terms of the energy of the photons and do the calculation that the photons here are actually equivalent on a molar, molar photon basis to this energy in terms of kilojoules per mole. Okay, So quantum mechanics says that we conserve energy Now, I wanted to put together for you, give you a graphical representation of quantum mechanics. This is a classic photochemical diagram. It's called a Jablonski diagram for the gentleman that actually started drawing these. And these are nice graphical representations. Don't get blown away by this if you're not a P-chammerer. But in photochemistry, uh, what we like to do is take a look at ground states. And so everything down here at the bottom of the slide in white, if you can make that out, is the ground state of a molecule. Okay. Up here, I've indicated in yellow, and this is a, uh, uh, an excited state. Okay. And what I'm showing you here with arrows are different types of transitions. Transitions from a ground state to uh, an excited state. And now these uh, A transitions are rotational transitions, and they're typically in the far infrared. And so we're exciting molecules here. They're very low energy. The gaps here are associated with the size or the energy of the uh, photon required for the uh, uh, excitation of that state. So this is a rotational excitation. This is a vibrational excitation, and that's typically in the infrared. And this C is an electronic transition to an electronically excited state. Now, if we heat up food in a microwave oven, uh, microwaves actually uh, are rotational excitation of the water molecule, okay? And so that's down here in terms of these A transitions. As it turns out, the rotation of the molecule, because we have all sorts of hydrogen bonding in our food products, as this molecule gets into an excited rotational state, there's that state, there's actually some friction and some bond breaking, hydrogen bond breaking. Uh, that allows for the transmission of heat and that heat can actually be associated with going to uh, uh, a level of vibrational or heat energy excitation associated with the molecules. But the ones that we're worried about or concerned about mostly in environmental chemistry are see here these electronic transitions that allow for the The presentation of an excited state up here an electronically excited state because this is where happens that we have photochemical reactions and also dissociations Uh, this is where the energy of chemical reaction typically happens as I kind of indicated that sometimes we can have an excited state and again this is a Jablonski diagram of the molecule that we just talked about and so we have a molecule that is absorbing a photon h nu um, into an excited state, and this is the molecule we'll call M1. And this molecule now has its asterisks, it's an excited state. But what we can do is is find uh, a potential for energy transfer to a wholly different molecule, and all we need is for that molecule to have some states, some excited states uh, that are equivalent to the excited states here. So if energy is in this direction, upwards uh, on this graphic in a Jablonski diagram, that this quantile of energy can have an inner system energy transfer, inner system from molecule 1, a transfer over to molecule 2. And this will allow for molecule 2 to have a reaction. And so this uh, allows uh, for the potential excitation of one partner, like the mercury in the fluorescent lamp, To actually have an energy transfer over to the fluorescent compounds in your fluorescent light bulbs and then the fluorescent compound then gives off a photon in this particular case, a photon of visible light that we see and illuminates our rooms and our households. That's how intermolecular energy transfer works in that particular case. The same sort of processes can happen in terms of this collection, this massive collection of environmental chemicals. You need to know that this transfer just doesn't happen in terms of uh, whether or not there's equivalent energy. There are all sorts of rules of quantum mechanics. Uh, if you haven't taken physical chemistry, please do, and you'll understand those to a higher degree. Uh, these quantum mechanics laws uh, govern what are con- referred to as allowed or forbidden transitions, uh, allowed transitions. And it has a lot to do with electronic states, uh, and some, again, uh, fundamental physical parameters of the molecules. Now, in our uh, uh, processes, our fundamental photochemical processes, we can also have uh, excited states where we have uh, a photoexcitation from one molecule to another. What happens when a molecule uh, absorbs a photon? Uh, what happens is we can have uh, nothing happen in terms of the overall uh, molecular state. Uh, and in fact, this is the predominant pathway, is that there's all, if not everything, is a reaction. In fact, reactions, photochemical reactions, are reasonably rare. We'll show you something here in a few slides called quantum yield or the yield of these processes. And so typically we require uh, uh, a lot of photons to affect, uh, not in terms of mass, but in terms of just the percent turnover of chemicals that will actually react. And so quite often we'll find that the molecule itself is unchanged, and this happens because there can be a vibrational loss of energy. The vibrational stages in those Jablonski diagrams, actually uh, there's a great crossover, and so we can put light into a molecule and have it just heat up. It vibrates that energy away. Uh, It can also just uh, do some things like emit light. It can turn around and spit out a photon, a photon of equal or lesser energy, right, Uh, because it may have lost some vibration but also then spit out a photon. And so these are typically called uh, fluorescing or phosphorescing compounds, an excited molecule that has um, the uh, ability to uh, remove its energy or release its energy by uh, emitting a photon. Um, there can also be uh, an energy transfer uh, promoting a uh, an electron in another chemical species, and this is that energy transfer or photosensitization. So although we have a photoexcitation of M1, the first molecule, it really is unchanged. It's pretty much dumped its energy off to that other molecule, M2. We can also have chemical reactions happening. Um, and again, the energy of, might be from direct photon uh, analysis and reaction with another chemical because you're in an excited state and maybe that uh, will allow a chemical reaction to happen. Um, it can also allow for a chemical reaction to happen after an energy transfer. Um, that molecule itself or its partner in terms of inner system uh, energy transfer can fragment, it can break up into smaller molecules. You also can have an intramolecular rearrangement. A Rearrangement, uh, again, you're in an excited state. The molecule was in a ground state or a relaxed state. And so now that you're, you've given it some energy, that energy may allow for a rearrangement of bonds, of atoms within that molecule, so that molecule itself will change. Some of this can uh, uh, include uh, uh, processes like isomerization or dimerization, uh, two molecules uh, coming together in dimerization, or isomerization in terms of just a bond shift uh, within it. It's the same molecule in terms of the overall chemical formula, but significant isometric uh, uh, changes. In other words, the molecule goes from a left-handed molecule to a right-handed molecule is one example. Uh, we can have uh, a hydrogen atom removal also, and we can have an electron transfer reaction happening in some of these photo excitation reactions. Now, I hinted that reaction quantum yield is typically low. Um, RQY, reaction quantum yield, is defined as the fraction of excited molecules in a given compound that react by a physical or chemical pathway. And so this... uh, Reaction quantum yield is just the relationship of the moles of molecules that are transformed divided by the moles of photons absorbed by the system due to the presence of that particular compound, okay? And so this is the uh, efficiency, if you will, of a photochemical reaction. It's called reaction quantum yield, okay? And so, as I hinted before, sometimes uh, the quantum yield is actually reasonably low. Why is that reasonably low? It has a lot to do with the ability of the molecule itself to transfer or shuttle this energy through other different pathways. There are also complexities in natural environments uh, that allow for uh, the transfer of vibrational energy and chemical energy within uh, a particular M1 or molecular system. Think of this uh, model here. And uh, this is a Florida pond I've given you because here's an alligator right here. Uh, But if we have uh, uh, an energy source, uh, we'll call it either direct sunlight or diffuse sunlight that's impinging, in this particular case, on an aquatic ecosystem, we might have some chemical in here and these uh, uh, green uh, Xs here, uh, these green molecules, uh, is our contaminant, these are our, our absorptive uh, molecules. Uh, in most waters, uh, you're going to get some degree of surface uh, reflection happening, uh, a mirroring uh, of the surface. Uh, if you look at the uh, surface of water-bright day without sunglasses, uh, you'll squint because of the reflective properties of water. But you can get uh, refractive uh, transmission of light. Uh, If you've ever gone swimming in natural waters, uh, even in the uh, somewhat muddy or dirty waters, uh, typically there's a degree of uh, light uh, that gets through. Uh, Even in dirty waters, there's an optically thin surface layer, Uh, and depending upon uh, how dirty that water is, uh, that layer can uh, be a variable depth. Um, These reflective particles uh, that I've put here in brown are just that, they can be uh, suspended organic matter, suspended inorganic matter, uh, dirt if you will. Uh, Those can reflect and absorb uh, light. Uh, And uh, as you get down towards the bottom, you get an optically thick uh, eutrophic zone. And so uh, as you get deeper and deeper, especially uh, in uh, eutrophied waters, Uh, you're gonna get less and less light uh, coming through as you get into uh, deep depths. Uh, So what we have is the potential for um, these photons to actually uh, go into the water and actually excite uh, these molecules. Uh, These excited state uh, molecules have the ability to react unimolecularly or bimolecularly in terms of their uh, potential for environmental chemical reaction some of the uh, photolysis reactions of some chemicals and i've listed uh phenanthrine. uh this is a, a, a um, uh, polycyclic uh, aromatic hydrocarbon as is anthracene uh nitrobenzene uh an oxidizing uh substance and 2,4,6 trinitrotoluene uh also known as uh, TNT Uh, contaminant in the waters and soils associated with military operations and practice ranges. Um, What you can see here is uh, these are the wavelengths in terms of the absorption uh, for these particular compounds. Uh, All of these are unsaturated. They have benzene ring type structures in them. Uh, You can see that there is uh, an absorption somewhat similar for all of those. and So this is probably going to be a pi to pi star absorption of the two types. But you can see over here in terms of the reaction quantum yield, uh, following uh, absorption of a photon, when we actually count up how many of these molecules in controlled studies actually fertilize, uh, they actually go through a unimolecular, bimolecular reaction, you can see that the yields here are in the order of 10 to the minus 2, 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 5, 10 to the minus 3. So one in a thousand, one in 10,000, one in 100,000 type uh, ranges are actually going to react. And this has a lot to do with the competitive pathways of excitation, things like vibrational removal of uh, this excitation. So they just get hot in a certain sense. They absorb a photon. They don't fertilize or dissociate. They just radiate out in terms of vibrational energy. There can be uh, indirect photolysis as well in environmental systems. Most of our complex environmental waters and soils uh, have what are referred to as UCs or unknown chromophores. Uh, We as scientists use that term because it's just so complex. We can't really define uh, what's in a generalized environmental system. These uh, uh, unknown chromophores are referred to as the primary solar photon absorbers. Uh, Now, one of the uh, processes that can happen is that these unknown chromophores are in excited states. And as people study uh, photolysis environmental chemistry, uh, we find that uh, oxygen is one of the most important acceptors of energy from these photochemically excited unknown chromophores. And so what we find is that uh, oxygen, which exists in in terms of its electronic state, and again, those of you who haven't taken physical chemistry, uh, don't don't be uh, too uh, excited yourself about uh, the terminology here. But we have a ground state uh, triplet state. Uh, This is how oxygen that we breathe exists. It's an O2. It's triplet in terms of the spin pairing of the electrons. It goes into an excited singlet state uh, uh, on absorption of a photon from this uh, uh, unknown chromophores that occur from solar energy uh, absorption. Uh, That energy required to go into excited singlet state is very low. It's only 94 kilojoules per mole. And so there's a fair amount of this excited singlet state oxygen around due to photolysis reactions and energy transfer from these unknown chromophores in uh, environmental chemistry. Uh, There are some high energy sensitized uh, electrophilic and we'll define what electrophilic or uh, electrophile or electron loving uh, chemical reactions are but these uh, photoreactants include uh, singlet oxygen, And so we find now that the singlet oxygen that has been produced because it's low energy and because there's an abundance of these unknown chromophores, uh, there's a pretty good abundance of singlet oxygen. Um, There's also the potential for production of hydroxyl radicals, which we've uh, talked about as being a very strong uh, oxidizing substance that can, uh, in this particular case, be a result of a photochemical reaction. And various peroxyl radicals uh, that also can happen as a result of various photochemical reactions. And so these are uh, high energy, uh, highly reactive chemicals resulting, these are primary chemicals resulting from environmental photochemistry. What happens to these in terms of their disposition? Singlet oxygen is primarily quenched uh, by water, um, and uh, water can absorb that energy, Uh, and uh, we can also find that it can uh, help a uh, ring closure called a Diels-Alder reaction with organic molecules. If you studied organic chemistry, you know what a DA is. The low concentrations uh, overall of singlet oxygen in the environment make it less important. The hydroxyl radical, um, the photolysis of nitrate, uh, is a major pathway in terms of reactive pathway. Um, It's highly reactive dissolved organic matter. uh, The uh, uh, tea, if you will, uh, from uh, decomposing organic matter like leaves. Next time you see a puddle uh, that's brown uh, and uh, leaves sitting in it, uh, this will be a dissolved organic matter, the various humix and fulvic acids. Um, it will um, uh, be a major reactive pathway for these highly reactive hydroxyl radicals produced by photochemical reaction. Uh, peroxyl radicals are, are uh, OOs, uh, Uh, There's many varieties. Uh, These uh, are not particularly well scavenged by dissolved organic matter on a relative basis. I'm gonna give you a quick uh, focus area in terms of reactive uh, environmental chemistry. Uh, For most of the students that take this course, uh, the whole uh, analysis and uh, discovery of uh, the concept of ozone depleting chemicals uh, was uh, perhaps uh, happening uh, as you were still watching cartoons and uh, drinking out of sippy cups at home. Uh, This uh, was a pretty big deal uh, for for many of us elder folk. Uh, uh, It was a little bit scary because I think for the first time in uh, modern history, uh, modern environmental history we recognized that uh, what we did uh, could change the planet. Uh, We had seen uh, instances of water pollution and air pollution, uh, but these were typically uh, site-specific problems, problems that responded in most cases very well to site-specific cleanup and management efforts. With the depletion of the ozone layer being linked to chlorinated fluorocarbons, uh, CFCs, these are, are, materials, uh, that were used in, as refrigerants, in air conditioners, uh, in refrigerators, uh, in, in consumer products. Uh, these particular chemicals, uh, it was discovered, uh, go off into the atmosphere, and this is a situation where perhaps we should have done a better job of life cycle assessment. Uh, We should have done a better job at modeling the behavior of these particular chemical compounds, uh, but, in fact, we didn't. Uh, The best thing that we can do at this point in time is learn from our uh, experience with CFCs and the ozone layer uh, to better design systems, future systems that are more sustainable, less impacting of the natural environment. But these CFCs uh, are released, uh, they're released by leaky refrigerants, uh, leaky refrigerators, uh, air conditioners, uh, and industrial processes. Uh, I might also say that although we're going to focus on chlorinated fluorocarbons, uh, there are several other chemicals uh, that are known ozone depleters, uh, including some nitrogen oxides uh, in terms of our daily processes. Uh, there are some chemical fumigants used in agriculture, like methyl bromide. Uh, These uh, chemicals uh, if they have not been banned or limited uh, they are on track to being banned and limited. Typically uh, it's finding a replacement chemical in terms of industrial engineering for these processes uh, that uh, is sometimes the limiting uh, factor in terms of our ability to transition to safer technologies, safer chemicals. Uh, CFC elimination was uh, uh, helped along by engineers and chemical engineers and chemists that actually were able to develop a class of uh, chemical compounds uh, that included uh, the basic properties of CFCs and refrigeration cycles, but they did not have the reactive chemistry, the stratospheric reactive chemistry uh, that CFCs did have. Uh, Follow-up analyses has suggested that uh, we may not be as clean as we thought we were in terms of uh, these new wave chemicals, and so there's tremendous opportunities as well as concerns in terms of the future and our development of uh, chemicals, uh, especially volatile chemicals, that uh, are ozone neutral uh, in terms of uh, uh, not depleting the ozone layer. In terms of the uh, program, so to speak, of what happens when CFCs are released, uh, they enter the stratosphere because they are volatile. Um, sunlight produces some breakdown products. One of the breakdown products is hydrochloric acid. Another is chlorine nitrate. And so uh, we have these inorganic compounds. There's a heterogeneous reaction. Heterogeneous uh, is a term uh, meaning that we're going to have different phases. Uh, so we have a gas phase reaction happening on a liquid surface, and these are on stratospheric cloud surfaces, so on the droplet surfaces at the interface. So we have a difference of phase, gas phase reactant, on a water cloud water droplet. Uh, these reactions produce uh, Cl2, or chlorine gas, which is then absorbs another photon and then is photolyzed into chlorine radicals by ultraviolet light. Uh, remember, you're up in the stratosphere where the uh, amount of ultraviolet uh, is, is, far more, uh, is far greater uh, than on the surface. Uh, the chlorine radicals uh, have the ability to then catalyze the conversion of ozone, ozone which in itself is photochemically produced from oxygen, um, but uh, uh, in its production it also is a good UV absorber. Uh, Unfortunately, chlorine radicals do catalyze the conversion of ozone back into oxygen. Uh, The problem then is that we have decreased ozone levels. Uh, This allows for less absorption of UV photons uh, coming in from from the Sun, Uh, so it does increase UV radiation at the Earth's surface. I've given you an update in terms of 2002 uh, uh, diagnostics on the uh, uh, Antarctic ozone hole. Uh, you can surf around the web and find out tremendous amounts of information on where this is going. Most people think that the Montreal Pact, and I agree, uh, w- in terms of banning CFCs, uh, was an outstanding accomplishment in terms of international relations, countries uh, doing good. Uh, coming together uh, in terms of uh, preserving uh, the ozone layer, uh, banning chemicals, cycling them out. RCFC is still produced and used, yes, uh, in very uh, limited quantities and typically uh, more in developing nations, uh, but we have rolled back the production uh, and release of these significantly. Now the um, Uh, Cause effect there in terms of release uh, has been significant. At least uh, most scientists will agree that the results of the actions of uh, the body politic, the world body politic in the 1980s, uh, the mid-1980s, with the Montreal Protocol banning CFCs has been a large-scale environmental success, one that we can all point to as we uh, move on to the challenges, uh, for example, of global warming. But in terms of uh, where we've come, uh, this uh, graph here is uh, the Dobson units. Dobson units are essentially a measurement of the uh, thickness of the uh, ozone layer, the thickness and density. And you can see in this particular graphic, 1979 to 2001, at least we have stabilized uh, that thickness. It is no longer decreasing at the rapid rate uh, that we saw before uh, we banned uh, those chemicals. We can also see at least a plateauing uh, as well in the size of the Antarctic ozone hole. Uh, This is 79 to 2001. Uh, We're getting up into the uh, mid to high 20s. I think last year was uh, 28, but at least we're not in this rapid change uh, zone. Uh, Most scientists that have modeled this think that it's going to take uh, about 50 years or more uh, for this uh, trend to reverse itself. Fortunately, uh, perhaps we are uh, at a place where there is uh, not a lot of biology happening. Uh, The interaction of uh, high-energy UV and biology is significant. Uh, However, um, what we do find is that um, the uh, higher energy photons that hit the surface of the Antarctic do cause an increase in ground surface heating as it is a major uh, ecological resource in terms of water, ice, and uh, uh, in terms of a, uh, a local ecosystem, there is the potential for this Antarctic ozone hole to impact the Antarctic ecology and the water dynamics of this particular environment. Let's get back to environmental chemistry and let's review the different types of abiotic reactive pathways that can happen in environmental chemistry. I've introduced the term several times in the course electrophilic or uh, electron-loving. We also have nucleophilic uh, reactions. Uh, We have oxidation reactions. We have reduction reactions and other various abiotic pathways. Those of you who have taken a significant amount of organic chemistry recognize uh, these terms, have uh, good... uh, 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 capacity to kind of understand them as we apply these organic molecule reactions to environmental chemistry. But for the purposes of just reviewing here, we'll go through these and just try and get a handle on these particular pathways and how they relate to chemistry and therefore toxicology. In terms of nucleophilic and electrophilic reactions, um, you know that covalent bonds uh, between atoms uh, are uh, based on electronegativity, and typically they're polar. Uh, when we uh, look at freshman and organic chemistry, we see these uh, electropositive uh, carbon atoms, and so we've put a delta plus on those and a delta minus uh, for an electronegative uh, atom. And so there is a charge distribution uh, there uh, in terms of uh, electronegativity uh, from one uh, atom to another in this covalent bond. Uh, they can be the sites for chemical reaction. Nucleophilic reactants are reactants that are seeking uh, positive. Uh, and so uh, this will be a uh, nucleophilic reactive site Uh, Electrophilic reactants will be negative seeking, and so electrophilic reactants will be seeking this side of the covalent bond. What we find when we take a look at environmental chemistry is that most of the chemicals in the environment, the natural world around us, uh, aquatic ecosystems, for example, um, uh, most of these species are uh, species that chemically react uh, with organic molecules as nucleophiles. Okay, and so they are uh, essentially positive seeking uh, chemical reactants. These are the chemicals that are abundant in the environment. Environmental nucleophiles uh, are many. Uh, They are typically inorganic and they are abundant. Uh, because of this abundance, uh, electrophiles are short-lived, uh, as it turns out, and the reactions of organic compounds with electric, uh, electrophiles are usually photochemically or biologically induced. As we go down this list, a uh, fairly comprehensive list of environmental nucleophiles, you'll see water on here, uh, perchlorate. Uh, this is mostly a, uh, a synthetic compound, acetate, sulfate, uh, Hydroxyl, uh, hydroxide ions, cyanide, phosphates, uh, can function as environmental nucleophiles. One thing you notice is that these all have, uh, negative charges with the exception of H2O, which does have, uh, a fairly, uh, polar distribution of its, uh, electronegativity. Now, nucleophiles, uh, nucleophilic species, have uh, full or partial uh, negative charges. Uh, When encountering an organic molecule uh, with a polar bond, what happens is the electron-rich atom of the nucleophile can then form a bond with the electron-deficient atom of the organic molecule. And typically, we find in these reactions that the organic molecule has a leaving group. Uh, Since water is the most important environmental nucleophile, especially as OH minus the hydroxyl uh, uh, part of the water hydrolysis reaction that dominates our pH expression, um, what we find is that uh, hydrolysis is actually the uh, uh, nucleophilic reaction uh, of most importance in environmental chemistry, and it does transform the organic molecule into a more polar molecule, more water-soluble molecule. There are two basic uh, pathways uh, or models for nucleophilic substitution. This is taking you back to your organic chemistry discussions. You probably will recall SN1 and SN2 uh, reactions, SN1 being substitution, nucleophilic, unimolecular. S, substitution, N, nucleophilic, 1, unimolecular. And in this particular type of uh, uh, chemical reaction pathway in the environmental chemistry, water hydrolysis is the dominant pathway. What we have is we've got some organic molecule here, perhaps with a, a halogen, uh, group, remember that uh, we've got electronegativity, so we're going to have more of a negative charge out. In this case, might be a chlorine atom. The carbon will be electropositive. Um, this particular uh, step here, in terms of uh, uh, this excited disposition or this metastable state, will be an RLS or a rate-limiting step. Um, if you recall from our year discussions in organic chemistry, you can then have a uh, a um, uh, nucleophile come in, uh, such as uh, an OH minus, that actually is going to displace uh, in a unimolecular basis. So this unimolecular metastable state is why it's called an SN1, and this displacement is going to happen such that the new molecule and the new metastable excited state is going to have this displaced uh, uh, atom, in this case, uh, perhaps an OH. And finally, uh, we get the stabilized molecule, uh, uh, molecular product. We can also have an SN2 reaction. And again, this is substitution nucleophilic bimolecular, where we actually have um, a uh, reactive pathway that involves uh, this uh, nucleophile coming in. There's a rate-limiting step forming, again, a metastable state uh, where we have uh, uh, the reactive uh, pathway kind of presuming to go to a substitution uh, where in fact uh, in the case of water an OH has substituted and displaced a uh, chlorine uh, and again we can also uh, look at this for some types of compounds uh, as per being predominantly a water hydrolysis uh, reactive pathway now uh, is is SN1 and SN2, uh, these, these, these aren't uh, descriptive pathways we assign. It's what nature tells us. Uh, it's a part of the nature of the beast, how uh, a particular chemical uh, happens to go through uh, a particular reactive pathway. What we do is actually study these on a case-by-case basis. Uh, We come up with designating these as SN1 and SN2 based on things like spectroscopic evidence where we can identify these metastable intermediates, uh, these different uh, excited states, uh, uh, and this gives us an idea of how the mechanism of the particular chemical reaction is occurring. Some of the hydrolysis mechanisms uh, that we've studied uh, in terms of uh, potential uh, chemicals uh, in the environment, if X here in these chemicals is a halogen, uh, for instance, in this particular case, chlorine. uh, The hydrolysis of this particular chemical compound is about, uh, the half-life is 340 days. Uh, uh, Laboratory analysis suggests this goes by an SN2 reaction Uh, This particular chemical, as we put on uh, a chain here, is about 38 days. As we get down here to some other chemicals, including this one, which has uh, a benzene ring, Uh, so this is a chlorotoluene. Uh, This is by an SN1 reactive pathway, and it's half-life to hydrolysis. Again, the replacement of this chlorinated moiety to uh, hydroxyl is on the order of 15 hours for its half-life. Now, there are other abiotic reactions. Your textbook goes through and describes uh, some of these. I won't go into depth uh, other than you know these are, are things you need to be aware of. Uh, alkylation, this is where aliphatic molecules can develop a positive center, and uh, that can be an alkylating agent in an electrophilic reaction with a nucleophile. We can also have a, a process called beta elimination and this is where uh, a beta carbon uh, adjacent to a group uh, uh, to a nucleophilic reaction at a, an alpha carbon can actually um, uh, react and uh, essentially be kicked off and so it's almost a, a chain reaction down the molecule. The photochemical reaction, I'm sorry, the, the reaction happens at this atom but in fact there's elimination uh, transfer uh, beta to that to the next Uh, atom over. Uh, We can have a chlorination, uh, especially with excited state uh, chlorine, uh, with various aliphatic uh, uh, carbonyls and amines. And again, there's a wide variety of potential abiotic reactions given uh, concentration and of not only the uh, target uh, chemical but also of the reactants and as well uh, sufficient energy uh, to make that go through we can find tremendous uh, variety of reactive pathways, typical of some of the reactive pathways available and discussed in organic chemistry classes. Another pathway is oxidation. Uh, In freshman chemistry, it's defined as a loss of an electron or the introduction of an oxygen into a molecule. I always like to tell students, remind students, that combustion is best defined as combining with oxygen. I do recall uh, a, um, a book one time, uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, it talks a lot about firemen and how firemen are the last American heroes. But I remember a quote in that book uh, that the fireman's job is to keep you, your property, and your loved ones from combining with oxygen. Uh, in terms of oxidation we have uh, many atmospheric oxidants uh, because of the interaction of uh, solar photons and uh, oxygen Uh, these uh, can dissolve in water Uh, they can dissolve in water in atmospheric water and also in terrestrial water Uh, we have triplet oxygen which is the ground state uh, of oxygen of atmospheric oxygen. Typically, uh, uh, those of us that uh, have taken organic or physical chemistry usually recognize triplets as excited state, but for oxygen O2, um, it's the opposite. Singlet state oxygen uh, is an excited state. Uh, there can be oxygen atoms, highly reactive. Uh, there can be ozone, another highly reactive uh, oxidant. Uh, has an electrochemical potential sufficient to to bleach many things. We use ozone, for example, to disinfect uh, water. Hydroxyl radicals, uh, one of the strongest uh, free radicals uh, on the surface of the planet. It can be a photochemical uh, byproduct because it is such a strongly oxidizing substance. It is highly reactive, uh, will oxidize uh, most things it comes in contact with. Nitrogen dioxide is another uh, uh, photochemical oxidant, atmospheric photochemical oxidant, that can actually be um, uh, dissolved in water. We can also, uh, in terms of environmental chemistry, uh, follow reductive pathways. Reductive pathways are the gain of an electron uh, or a hydrogenation. There are several natural reducing agents, uh, and typically a reducing agent is something that has the ability to be oxidized, and so it can donate an electron, so it's a battery. And so ferrous iron, Fe2+, has the ability to be oxidized to ferric iron and in the process donate an electron, and this is one of the bases for hemoglobin, if you recall. Uh, Other reducing agents include uh, hydrogen sulfide, various iron porphyrins, uh, sulfideal compounds, hydroquinones, and hydrated electrons uh, themselves. Some of the reactions uh, that can happen out in environmental chemistry of interest uh, include reductive dechlorination uh, and nitro group reduction. And so these are chemical reactions. These are abiotic chemical reactions. Uh, Sometimes we find that they are assisted by various enzymes and catalysts uh, that occur out in nature. I've given a chemical reaction down here of DDT. You can see that this is fully chlorinated, uh, but in this particular reduction, it's gaining two electrons and a hydrogen, and it's going to DDD one of the metabolites. Uh, The next step would be uh, removal of another chlorine to DDE, DDD and DDE are the primary metabolites you find in your own body fat from DDT exposure through the liposphere. Another category uh, is of chemical reactions of interest in environmental chemistry, abiotic chemical reactions, are redox reactions. And this is the chemical reactivity of electron acceptors, oxidants, and donors, also known as reductants. Uh, they can act, react uh, abiotically in a, in a uh, thermally favorable or an energetically favorable uh, reactive environment uh, with a given particular chemical. Uh, that may chemical may or may not uh, be present in sufficient uh, abundance in terms of the natural environment. Uh, We do find that most redox reactions, even though they're chemically based, are biologically mediated. Um, It's very difficult in terms of the natural world. And I warn students not to be overly enthusiastic about separating abiotic processes from biotic processes. Microbial influences especially will be dominant in many uh, environmental systems, even though you may be very comfortable with the chemistry of the situation please be cognizant that the microbiology has the ability to dominate the greater uh, chemical environment in a reactive environmental system. Some of these natural uh, redox processes have to do with essentially the battery, the group of half-reactions that are present uh, in these natural environments. Uh, Remembering from, again, from freshman chemistry, you have to have uh, a certain redox uh, 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 to be able to uh, have the uh, chemical reaction, redox potential, to have the chemical reaction be uh, uh, exothermic or endothermic. Uh, Something that is going to be spontaneous will be exothermic. Something that will be non-spontaneous that requires energy will be endothermic. There are multiple pathways. Unlike uh, the battery and the energizer buddy, where you have an isolated chemical reaction, uh, in terms of an isolated system, the environment is uh, far greater than that, far more complex. Typically what we have is uh, all uh, of these types of reactions happening, uh, including uh, the, uh, these are uh, half reactions, these are reduction half reactions, Uh, They can be written both ways, but typically we write them as standard reduction potentials. And these potentials have developed out there, but it's the concentration of these various chemicals in there that will dominate the actual number of electrons uh, and the potential of those electrons available for environmental chemical reactions. And so typically what we find is that uh, these are complex systems, there are dominant pathways And uh, our approach sometimes to monitoring these redox processes is to do simply simple things like uh, look at EHs uh, or uh, ORPs, oxidation reduction potentials. What is the final potential of the system? And then look in terms of the chemistry at what the dominant pathways are that are driving that potential. Is it an oxidizing system is the question we will ask. Is it a reducing system is another question we'll ask. And those will be good in terms of either making certain types of processes happen or not. Uh, For example, on the surface of terrestrial systems, it's a relatively oxidizing environment because of the presence of oxygen and all of the oxidizing species we talked about. Whereas in subsurface environments where we have oxygen-poor, Conditions, Uh, these are typically going to be more reducing or anaerobic uh, conditions, and therefore, different sorts of chemistry, reductive chemistry, will occur. One of the ways we can understand environmental systems in terms of their redox capacities is to try to map redox stabilities. Uh, what we do in this particular approach, uh, and this approach is uh, poor Bay diagrams. There are courses in environmental chemistry and environmental geochemistry that you can take where you learn actually how to do poor Bay diagram mapping. Poor Bay diagrams are essentially just a map of the redox stabilities of certain types of chemicals. Uh, these are thermodynamic uh, diagrams, and so you have to be very cautious in using thermodynamics because as we'll learn next time when we talk about environmental chemodynamics, thermodynamics just tells us if it can happen. Okay? It doesn't tell us how fast it will happen. And so our discussion needs to be associated with the possible, but not necessarily the probable because What might be a very energetically favorable reaction in terms of thermodynamics may actually take geological time for it to produce the other side of the reaction. Therefore with regards to us this might be something that we uh, would consider in terms of our understanding of a local or a contaminated environment. This is a Porbay diagram for lead and I've kind of uh, uh, hinted at several times in several lectures about the importance of chemical speciation and and the variability of uh, uh, different types of species. Uh, This is one of the more complex Bay diagrams and so I'm going to give you one that's uh, 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 fairly difficult to start to give you an idea. Um, This is a mapping of the the thermodynamic stability fields in a uh, uh, an environment. What we are mapping in this direction on um, the x-axis is pH. and so this is zero to fourteen. Circumneutral pHs dominate uh, most environmental systems, and so we're talking about pH five to perhaps pH ten. So somewhere in here is what you're typically dealing with with natural waters. On this axis, these are redox potentials, and this is listed as E-H. This is the redox potential, uh, the oxidation reduction potential, and that's normalized to the standard hydrogen electrode. That's why we have an H here. And so this is minus 1 volt to plus 1 volt with 0 in the middle. Positive numbers indicate oxidizing conditions, negative numbers indicate reducing conditions. Now you can probably just make out here on your your monitors here the uh, two dashed lines here. There's one I'm following right here at the pointer and this is where we will actually reduce water. So below this is not really of environmental concern uh, for synthetic systems it might be. Up here, we have a dashed line here, and this is where water is oxidized. So again, above that is not of environmental concern. As you can imagine, uh, the area of most environmental concern is typically right about in the center, circumneutral pHs in either uh, slightly oxidizing or slightly reducing uh, environments. What you get on here in all of these different fields is the different types of species that will be most thermodynamically stable. And so, for example, uh, if we start talking about circumneutral pHs, uh, something in a uh, not particularly highly oxidized or highly reduced system, you see that the thermodynamics is going to drive the reactive chemistry in some time frame, and we don't know anything about kinetics from these diagrams, to lead carbonate. Uh, We can also have lead sulfate here, um, and uh, where's our lead metal? It's way down here. It's highly reduced. As it turns out, most of the lead that we find in natural minerals is as a sulfide, and that's down here in terms of the reduced substrate, reduced sulfur, um, and uh, binding with uh, lead because it has an exceptionally low KSP, or solubility product constant. You can see that an highly alkaline situations where you get up in pH 11, 12, 13, you can see that there's a variety of uh, chemical forms uh, that these lead oxides uh, can take. You find also that as we get into low pH, we start actually oxidizing uh, and freeing up uh, in terms of aqueous uh, solubility, uh, lead two plus. And so uh, we can find uh, lead two plus down here in very very low pHs in reasonably oxidized waters. We're going to be talking about uh, acid mine drainage. Acid mine drainage is down on this end of the uh, uh, focus area. Now this is uh, uh, not all of the substances that are possible in the Port Bay diagram. We haven't chosen all of the various species. If we put in all of the aqueous and uh, precipitated species, it becomes even more complex. And The idea here is not to have you become an expert in uh, lead environmental chemistry, but to give you uh, at least a good sensitivity to the complexity of all the different species and chemical forms uh, of lead that might be available in the environment. We've chosen lead in terms of looking at blood lead and uh, childhood blood lead uh, risk assessment, blood exposure. It's been a a little bit of a a theme in terms of using that as a risk assessment. Uh, If we were to continue that theme here today, you can see that if you're involved in environmental lead risk assessment, this is a fairly complex undertaking because, in fact, you're not just looking at lead, you're looking at perhaps uh, a dozen or two different species or subspecies. Uh, You're tracking them in terms of what's most appropriate. But what this does is it gives you the idea that uh, simple is not necessarily the best. You have to have at least uh, a minimal comprehension of the potential for complexity when it comes to species to to come from uh, different mineralization pathways and the relative bioavailability, the relative toxicity of all of these uh, different species. Why do we need to know that? Because there are some areas uh, uh, of the United States uh, that are highly contaminated with heavy metals such as lead. We're going to do a quick focus area to finish off today's lecture. We're going to talk about uh, abandoned mined lands. Um, this, the numbers here that we're going to talk about uh, are constantly changing. Uh, these reference numbers for, were for in the late 1990s. Uh, these have changed significantly, but I haven't been able to find current numbers. So uh, typically these situations have improved somewhat, but they still remain a problem. But the former Bureau of Mines, the Bureau of Mines used to be a part of the uh, Geological Survey, uh, the US Geological Survey. Uh, there was about 12,000 miles of rivers and streams and about 180,000 acres of lakes and reservoirs uh, severely impacted by abandoned uh, mine lands. And these were not only metal mines, but also coal mines. And again, what happens in the mining process? The mining process takes uh, reduced substrates in the subsurface, digs them up. And what happens is uh, in the mineral extraction processes, in the ore extraction process, uh, we turn over a tremendous amount of soil. Quite often that soil contains reduced substrates, which can then react uh, in an accelerated weathering with the uh, oxygen uh, at the surface, and also uh, with the oxidation potential of uh, what's in water and precipitation. Uh, There is also a potential then for mobilization of these substrates, and unfortunately, the way things work in uh, mine lands, these reduced substrates typically have immobilized some things that we refer to as Uh, heavy metals or uh, contaminants uh, of concern um, such as some radionuclides associated with some mining operations. But bringing them to the surface can sometimes uh, release them to be mobilized. One of the uh, telling uh, signs of what's referred to as acid mine drainage or AMD, you'll also hear the term ARD or acid rock drainage, the one of the telling uh, signs historically has been the production of these bright orange oxide uh, stains. Uh, this has to do with uh, reduced uh, iron pyrites, or iron sulfides, being oxidized, uh, becoming iron sulfates, uh, and uh, presenting, we'll go through the chemistry of, of uh, iron oxidation here. Uh, currently, there's about uh, 500,000 uh, abandoned uh, mines in the US these are being closed and remediated and cleaned up. But it's probably still in the hundreds of thousands. So this is a 1990s statistic uh, or mid 1990s uh, statistic, but it's still in the hundreds of thousands. In the western United States, uh, you can go to websites, and uh, some of them I've actually linked on this particular website, uh, this particular course uh, uh, lecture site. Uh, in, in many of the western US uh, states, uh, including Idaho, uh, these abandoned mine sites. Sometimes they're quite small. Uh, they can also be quite large, uh, but they typically are uh, in the numbers of tens of thousands uh, in some, several western U.S. states. One of the things we need to know about in terms of uh, understanding acid rock drainage, acid mine drainage, is the solubility product constants for metal sulfides and metal hydroxides. Quite often what we find is that the mineral ores, the origins of these heavy metals, are as sulfide or uh, sulfide-bearing minerals. You can see that the KSP or the solubility product constant for these metal sulfides are typically very small, 10 to the minus 45th for copper, uh, 10 to the minus 23rd for zinc, 10 to the minus 28th for lead, cadmium 10 to the minus 29th, uh, even iron at 10 to the minus 19th, nickel at 10 to the minus 16th. When you have KSPs, or solubility product constants, remembering from freshman chemistry, uh, that are very, very small, those are indicators of small degree of solubility. And so these copper sulfides, these metal sulfides, these zinc sulfides, these lead sulfides, are highly insoluble. Now what happens is in acid rock drainage is that the sulfide is oxidized to sulfate, and that then releases uh, the metal in terms of being able to be dissolved in water, uh, so it enhances its solubility and therefore enhances its mobility. The other thing you should know about is metal hydroxides. Uh, Metal hydroxides are another form of uh, these metals, and if we have sufficient hydroxide or basic conditions, we also have some KSPs that are relatively low, 10 to the 19th, 10 to the 15th, 10 to the minus 31. What this does is it presents a mechanism that if we add base to these solutions uh, in the same way you did this probably in freshman chemistry in terms of precipitating out metal hydroxides, environmental cleanup strategies for uh, these metals, these heavy metals, quite often can involve the addition of, uh, uh, of alkali to form these uh, metal hydroxides. I was once uh, touring uh, an active mine uh, in Alaska. This is about 100 miles north of the Arctic Circle on the south slope of the Brooks Range. And during a helicopter overflight of some incredibly beautiful territory, you have to remember, uh, as I had to remember, that these metal uh, bearing, heavy metal bearing minerals are part of our natural environment. And because there were several uh, places in this Local natural environment unimpacted by mining uh, that had exposed minerals uh, in the surface that were being weathered and oxidized. It was very interesting to see some of the streams running kind of an opalescent white blue from the hydroxide reaction of the normal natural waters with the uh, uh, released uh, metals uh, that had re- been released from oxidized sulf- sulfides. And so here we saw kind of the changeover in terms of natural environmental chemistry of a weathering release, a weathering oxidation of metal sulfides, and then the co-precipitation, the precipitation of hydroxides from the natural pH and buffering and hydroxide of these natural waters. This was a very interesting observation for me. Typically, in acid uh, rock drainage situations, though, we, we have a problem, and that problem is acid production. Uh, This can adversely impact surface water, groundwater, and some riparian areas, and so active coal mining and metal mining operations typically are point sources for the production of acid rock drainage. We'll go through the chemical formulas of how that happens here in a moment. Uh, It's common in coal mining regions. Uh, Anybody who's been around coal mine, you'll see quite a bit of this orange uh, flock, of these ferric uh, oxides, hydroxides. Uh, It's a telltale sign. But on the other hand, you can also see this in naturally occurring uh, acid rock drainage uh, in terms of exposed mineral areas. This uh, acid rock drainage forms when these various pyrite substrates, and pyrite is a iron sulfide uh, compound, it's also referred to as mascarite, are exposed uh, to weathering conditions. And again, natural weathering will expose these mineral uh, outcrops. But uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, as you can imagine, uh, mining operations will accelerate this because of the high amount of soil turnover, uh, especially when the ore, uh, the waste rock associated with ore extraction, has a high amount of iron sulfides in it. The process includes oxidation and hydrolysis. How we look at that here uh, in terms of the chemical reaction, the chemical formula, of acid rock drainage is a very interesting one because it can be uh, autocatalytic at uh, very low pHs. But we have this uh, uh, solid sulfide, this pyrite iron sulfide. It combines with oxygen uh, and with water and it then uh, produces, uh, releases the ferrous iron and sulfate but it produces uh, some hydronium ions here. Uh, These hydronium ions are problematic because that's an acid production. This is why initially it's called acid rock drainage, but it also releases uh, here, in this case, ferrous iron. Now, I've listed many heavy metals of potential in acid rock drainage, and so although the predominant one, and typically in ARDs, is the bright orange-red associated with iron, we can have uh, mercury sulfides, zinc sulfides, lead sulfides. Lead sulfide is also a mineral form called galena. Uh, zinc sulfide is sphalerite. These minerals can go through the same process. And so when you see iron here, um, think also in terms of mobilized mercury, mobilized uh, cadmium, mobilized copper, zinc, lead. Next step in this process, because there is a bit of a chain reaction, is the ferrous iron then is available uh, because it's a reduced... Uh, 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 state of, of iron. It can be further oxidized uh, especially with uh, the uh, acid environment to ferric iron. Ferric iron is that nice bright red iron that we typically see. The ferric iron will react with water and it will actually hydrolyze water and take on the iron oxide. Uh, okay, The iron oxide because you've taken the uh, pH balance uh, equation uh, from water and uh, taking over some of the hydroxides will produce an excess amount of hydronium ion. Now the thing here is uh, if we take a look at this overall, we have reduced iron sulfide combining with oxygen, uh, in this particular case uh, H2 as well, and it actually forms this iron hydroxide, uh, it's a bright red iron oxyhydroxide uh, type uh, compounds these uh, oxidized uh, bright red uh, colorful acid rock drainage colors uh, that you see, uh, bright red and orange, but also the production of three moles of hydronium ions and acid production. The problem is as this continues to develop and pH drops below 3.5, you get another branch of reactions of direct oxidation uh, where we actually um, uh, will produce from the ferric iron and water itself, uh, reduced iron plus sulfate, and here's 16 hydronium ions. And so acid rock drainage uh, can be uh, autocatalytic uh, at these low pHs, driving the pH even lower. Uh, in highly impacted zones, believe it or not, you can actually get to negative pHs. Uh, in Negative pHs in environmental waters are very destructive, uh, not only because uh, of their... Uh, potential for acute lethality of any aquatic life that happened to uh, alight uh, in that particular water body, but it is also potentially uh, self-sustaining uh, um, because it is so acidic it can dissolve the minerals uh, in uh, that it's in contact with. So what we find in terms of the end products, it results in the formation of a soluble hydrous, uh, f- uh, ferric sulfates and the production of acidity. So acid rock drainage is just that. It's acidic and it's a drainage that has heavy metal contaminants. They're elevated iron sulfate, high total dissolved solids, very low pHs, and all of this consortium of other metals that happens to be in this deposit. And so typically it's not just iron, it can be lead, zinc, mercury, and every other heavy metal that's associated with that deposit. If it's a lead mine, you will find lead in your ARD. It involves oxidation of ferrous iron to ferric iron. It does produce this uh, acidity and the colorful iron oxyhydroxides. You need to know that although this uh, is an abiotic process, uh, it does interact with the sulfur cycle bacteria. And give you kind of a quick relationship diagram here. Um, typically, we can have uh, in these reduced sulfur. We can have oxidating, uh, oxidizing bacteria, typically thiobacillus thiooxidans types, that actually can oxidize uh, the sulfide, which is S-2, to uh, zero-valent uh, sulfur and to sulfate. Uh, completing that cycle, if we have it uh, actually go to an anaerobic zone, we can have SRBs or sulfate-reducing bacteria that can actually reduce this back down. If you recall, the selenium biogeochemical cycle we put up here, this is a very similar cycle, um, and again, has a lot to do with the ability of these types of microbes, in this case, thiobacillus, thioxidans and desulfolibrio desulfotomaculum, um, to enhance the rates of either oxidation or reduction of these uh, 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 sulfur cycle processes. Next few slides, uh, just to finish up here, I was just going to give you kind of a quick tour uh, of uh, some environments, and I talked about uh, the fact that mineral species uh, on, on terrestrial surfaces are in fact uh, potentially oxidizable. So next time you see an orange rock, I want you to think uh, acid rock drainage. Uh, usually it's in control in terms of the normal buffering capacities of other minerals in there, but red rocks typically mean a weathering of an iron-based mineral and the local production, and it can be a very small-scale production of potential acidity. This is a mine portal, this is what happens when we have uh, in the rock mining, uh, deep underground mining, because when we have a portal, when we have a, a subsurface mine into the side of a mountain, for example, in this case, we essentially create a pathway for oxidation and a pathway for oxidized water to actually uh release some of the uh iron and some of the acidity waters like this pouring out of a mining portal can actually be highly acidic uh, they're not only colorful because of the iron oxyhydroxides but they can be pH 3 or less This gives you an idea of what can happen, uh, especially because water uh, uh, flows according to its hydraulic gradient, and so if it's uphill, it's flowing downhill, and it can impact uh, from a mining area to the natural waters around it, um, depositing and dissolving uh, not only acidity, uh, but also uh, the heavy metals associated with that particular uh, mining operation. This is uh, uh, an aerial view. Uh, those of you that uh, are from the uh, west might recognize this as Butte, Montana. This is the Berkeley Pitt mine. We're going to be doing this as a case study in an environmental chemical uh, series. Uh, this is a copper mine uh, from uh, Anaconda Copper. Uh, that is right. This is downtown Butte right here. Uh, this is filling up um, uh, at about uh, uh, several million gallons per day. That has the ability now to impact the um, drinking water system of Butte, uh, Montana. Uh, this is highly acidic, uh, PH2, highly uh, high level of dissolved uh, heavy metals. It's the largest collection of contaminated water in the United States and we'll talk about it in terms of uh, using it as a reference uh, in terms of what's happening there, what the risks are, the risk assessment, some of the processes that we are looking at to try to control man's impact uh, next to a community that inarguably has benefited tremendously uh, in the past century uh, from, from mining activities. Well, next time what we'll do is we'll then take a, a separate tour. Uh, we'll talk uh, about uh, the uh, uh, environmental chemodynamics, uh, why things happen uh, in terms of environmental chemistry.